We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to part two of my discussion with Paul. In this half, we get into Putin's Tucker Carlson interview, war versus special military operations, and his more of his general thoughts on uh, conflict in the world and geopolitics. If you missed part one, we go through a lot of the complexities of the sanctions and the global south, big banks, uh, and a lot of the more financialization aspect of a lot of the problems that we are seeing in the world right now. Yeah, I think the reality versus the Western perception of it is a really important lesson. Again, we can use China, we can use Russia, we can use any of these different examples as a way to really explain and illuminate that idea that our way of looking at the world doesn't necessarily translate into every other part of the world. But I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on basically the same situation from, let's say, a different perspective. You know, recently, Vladimir Putin was interviewed by Tucker Carlson, and this was looked upon and poo-pooed by a lot of the mainstream media. Do you think that there are some bigger lessons that should be taken from that interview? And what do you think those are? Yeah, I was, to be honest, I was kind of in the camp that I thought it was an unwise interview from a Russian perspective, because I, you know, people thought it would be this game changer, that, that the West would have this epiphany moment, and everyone would see the West for what it was. And, and it will have changed some people's attitudes. Most people are really entrenched in whether they support the Putin view of the world or they support the exact opposite. And you're not going to get much. Most people are intractable in that regard. But I, in terms of the interview itself, I, I have to think that Putin's history lesson was, frankly, self-indulgent. It, it's interesting if you want to know history, but it isn't really relevant. And it was 25 minutes of a waste of time. You could have summed it up quite clearly that from the Russian perspective, you know, the architects of the, the nation state of Ukraine is down to Stalin and Lenin and left all the rest of the history out. In terms of the interview, I think Carlson could have asked him much tougher questions, which even Putin admitted he was surprised he didn't. I think it was illuminating in some senses where people will have got some idea that the Western world is quite how they think it is. You know, but there is a different perspective. I think Carlson was quite surprised going to Moscow and seeing that Moscow isn't collapsing. And in fact, it's thriving economically and the shops are full of goods and people generally seem pretty happy there and they're happy with Putin as a president. I mean, but people just go, well, that's propaganda. I mean, and largely most of what was said will be dismissed as propaganda. And to be honest, it's probably largely forgotten. Yeah, probably a billion people have watched it. A lot of it will have been forgotten and people won't remember it. And the West would rather try and pretend it never happened because it did shine some light on things. They'd rather people didn't think about. They regard rely on people being intractable, but they're worried about the, the, the percentage in the middle that's growing who perhaps doesn't, doesn't anymore believe completely the Western narrative. It doesn't mean they're pro-Putin or pro-Russia or believe everything the Russians are telling them, but they're certainly starting to question well, what Ukraine was about, you know, what Russia's perspective is on things, why Russia regards, you know, starting the war from their perspective was legitimate. Of course, this recent New York Times expose about the CIA building 12 secret bases on the border with Russia years prior to the Ukraine war starting in 2022 really just gives enormous gravitas to what Putin said. So that might, for me, be far more relevant and a challenge to the West than the interview itself. You know, I think, obviously, from Carlson's perspective, he kind of mistakenly went and tried to frame, well, you're swapping hegemony, but, you know, maybe it's better the devil you know than the devil you don't. Trying to infer China's going to be the new hegemonic power and Putin shot him down because Carlson, like everyone else, needs to understand China's not an hegemonic power. It never has been, never will be, and doesn't want to be, and realises the 
folly of doing so. So for me, that was quite important because it did make the point that a lot of people in the West think China wants to take over from the United States. The US tries to convey this impression because it can't understand a nation would actually like to have more influence on the world stage, but doesn't want to be an hegemonic power. So I don't think it's as as groundbreaking as people were thought it would be. I think people were blowing it out of proportion. I think it was unwise because there is always going to be a backlash from the West. And the backlash from the West is going to be unpredictable. The West is very irrational now, and there are conflicts going on in the world. I mean, not just Ukraine. And I think driving the United States to become more irrational and more fearful at this point in time is not a good idea. And I don't think the Russians needed their domestic audience to watch this. I I think it was geared towards a Western audience, not the political side, but just to try and make Western people perhaps think differently. And, and in that regard, you could argue it has some partial degree of, of success. But generally, for me, I just, I just thought, well, I, li- I made the point of listening to it because I had to. If I hadn't really thought I had to comment on it from a podcast perspective for my own subscribers, I probably wouldn't have bothered, in all honesty, because he didn't tell me anything I didn't already know or understand. But, you know, I felt I had to listen to it to then relay my thoughts on the merit of doing so. But, I mean, I, I think it certainly has rattled some people in the West. You can argue that's a good thing. I it can be a good thing, but again, it's back to the unpredictability and irrationality that that could have caused where the West to suddenly react very not violently is the wrong word, but react in a way to that by going, well, we have to do something to redress this. And they may have gone and done something that would prove subsequently to be erroneous at best and far worse. You know, because it may have just emboldened them and gone, well, we have to keep this Ukraine war going. And you're starting to hear some of that narrative coming out. Uh, and um, maybe it's not attributable to the interview itself, but I think it's part of that. And I always think with these things, it it's not always a, a win-win. It's not a win for the Russians. I don't think the Russians particularly gained anything from it. I think it raised uh, Colson's stature in the world as someone who's prepared to go somewhere where conventional Western wisdom said, don't do it and you shouldn't do it. And he's taken a lot of stick for doing it. And so I admire him for doing that sense, but I'd like him to go to China and do the same thing because it's no good going, well, the the narrative about Russia's a lie. And then, but then for subsequently to embrace that the Chinese narrative is the truth because it's equally a lie. It's And for the same reasons why the Russian narrative is largely a lie as well, because, you know, the, the Americans have admitted Russia's a problem, but China's a far bigger problem to us. So what what can we expect going forward in terms of trying to alienate the, the West against China and all the propaganda and all the lies that, and as much of it has been lies that have been told with regards to China and apparently things they're doing or things they should be doing and aren't doing. So I think that's my perspective on this. It's not a waste of time. I think there is some merit, but overall, I don't. I think it's something that people think was a a moment in history. It's not a moment in history. It's for me. There's far more important things that have happened in the last five years that most people weren't even aware happened. I go back to 2018 when Putin made a speech to the Duma about Russia's military capabilities when he told the world the things that weren't public knowledge to do with hypersonic missiles. For me, I said at the time, that was probably one of the most important speeches in the last 100 years, and I stand by that because that shifted the focus in the West. It went, hang on a minute. The, the, the Russians are a military adversary. We don't have the capabilities to contain them, which is why the US is desperate not to cross any red lines in Ukraine. Yes, of course, they're supporting them, but that's not crossing a red line. Yeah, there's some trainers that that's not crossing a red line, but don't do anything that might actually look like the United States or NATO is fighting a war against Russia and Ukraine directly because they're terrified of what the consequences will be. So for me, if you suddenly admit, and there is people coming out of the Pentagon who've admitted this and Langley going, we are militarily years behind the, the Russians, that changed the focus for the US's 
foreign policy enormously because suddenly the the even the concept of mutually assured destruction is no longer a certainty and that really has changed attitudes far more than than a Putin interview with Carlson was and that's not I'm not trying to diminish what Carlson was doing it's not a reflection on Carlson as a person or a, a journalist or or anything like that it's just for me the gravity of it wasn't as significant as perhaps other people felt and you know uh, but it, there is some mileage in doing this some validity but it needs some follow-up in the future and you know I'd like Carlson to ask Putin far tougher questions like you know do you think that you were too late going into Ukraine on the basis of what you believe you know what's your perspective in terms of your relationship with Israel and what we've subsequently seen unfolding what's your perception on on Israel you know asking questions that that actually not so much make him have to think but make him have to go hang on this is a tough one i have to how am i going to answer this he he rather let him off with questions that were very easy to answer and and you know when i personally with the history lesson would have said after 5 minutes well you did say 2 minutes you know 5 minutes let's cut this we know your perspective i'm not diminishing it but you know i don't think that's relevant and carlson let it go and i personally wouldn't have let that go and people will say well you can say that because you didn't interview him but genuinely if i was interviewing him, it might surprise people i would aim to give putin a very hard time in questioning because i think he'd like that he'd appreciate that it doesn't mean you're asking him unreasonable questions but give him something that he really has to think about and chew on but i think you know he he got a bit of a soft option and that for me was disappointing yeah i read that one person's perspective was the point of the history lesson was in a way to show the liquidity with which he thinks the ability for him to be able to recall facts and kind of contrast that to you know other let's say western leaders yeah well that's true yeah, yeah. i mean that's a very valid point and i think from that perspective that would have been extremely effective right but I think that point of changing some attitudes or at least getting people to consider a different point of view, I think that is extremely important. And hopefully, if nothing else, that interview started to help make that shift in some of these people. But I wanted to get your thoughts on what the cohesiveness within NATO is at this point. You know, you brought up these ideas that Russia is much stronger and there are some people coming to that realization. So how does that play into the ability of NATO to defend against such an opponent while trying to maintain some sort of cohesiveness or agreement between them? Well, here's the perspective. NATO started the war in Ukraine thinking, like a lot of Westerners, that Russia was some backward nation militarily. It didn't have the resources. It didn't have the technical capability. Its army was at best dysfunctional. And that was very much what the Russian military was in the 80s. But the Russian military is anything but that. And so NATO's learned some very painful lessons about Russia's capability. Not just to forget the, the economy and the financial system, Putin's, and just militarily their ability to just keep fighting the war. They could fight this war for years on the basis of how they're fighting as a special military operation and not a war. And that's an important point we made before we came on earth. The West doesn't understand if it, if it was a war, Russia would flatten cities. Instead, like Devka, they went in and it's like Stalingrad. It's street to street, house to house. They're fighting war on that basis, not because they want to avoid civilian casualties as much as possible. That People won't believe it, but that's true. And also they're trying to avoid being dragged into situations where they're in breach of international law, where they're accused of war crimes because they're killing huge amounts of civilians in the process. I mean, Putin's got a legal background. That's the driver behind this. So there's a lot of misunderstanding in the West in that regard. But the problem the West faces is they have dug a hole for themselves for a number of reasons. One is because they've convinced the Baltic republics and the likes of Poland, who've all convinced themselves in the process as well, that if Russia takes Ukraine, which it doesn't want all of Ukraine, it will then go for these republics. It wants to form the Soviet Union 2.0. And this is nonsense. 
Why would Russia want to take these republics? They don't have the resources, they don't have the military manpower, and they learned their lesson, a very painful one, that the old Soviet empire, including all these satellite countries, was a total disaster and should never be repeated. But the West thinks that. And the West has invented so much political capital in saying, well, we'll defeat Russia. Russia is going to be defeated, lying about what's going on, trying to magnify small, they're not even Pyrrhic victories that the Ukrainians had in the counteroffensive and not admitting that the counteroffensive failed and that Russia is winning hands down in every aspect of this war stroke special military operation. But because of all the political capital and all the enormous, I mean, Europe's in financed Ukraine to the tune of 130 billion euros, which it doesn't have, but saying, you know, we're defending our freedom. So it's all this enormous political capital, economic capital, financial capital that they've put in to defend our democracy in inverted commas in the West. They have to keep the war going, but they know the war's over. They know they've lost. But the problem is, in the process of the West having to finally just admit that Russia's won the war, the fallout will be catastrophic for the likes of NATO because the blame game will start. Because countries will then go, we've got to preserve our own political future. So who are we going to blame? Are we going to blame the Americans? Are we going to blame the British? Are we going to blame NATO? Who are we going to blame? Are we going to blame intelligence agency? So you get this dog-eat-dog situation, and then nations will blame other nations. And also NATO's credibility will be shot to bits because the world will go, well, you don't, you can't defend anything. You claimed you'd win the war and you lost. You threw everything at them. Okay, you didn't send your own military personnel in, but you did everything else and it failed. Well, you're not a military alliance and the alliance will fall apart because nations will then start to have to face the ramifications of what it's done to them on a nation-by-nation basis. So Germany's economy collapsing is one small example of that. And then the situation is going to become, well, we can't rely on the United States. And these Baltic republics will start to go, well, the US won't defend us because the truth is if Russia did, which they won't invade Estonia, Latvia or Lithuania, the Americans would stand there and do nothing because the United States doesn't want to go to a third world war with Russia because what's the outcome of that? A best mutual assured destruction and a worst because we don't really have the same capacity because our nuclear arsenal in the US is decades old. It's unstable. They spend billions of dollars a year to make sure weapons don't detonate in their silo. Can we even launch these? And Russia has a modern nuclear arsenal that's a matter of years old. There's no comparison. So the US is sat there going, well, therefore we can't in any way, shape or form provoke Russia into, into this general wider conflict. And they're going to look at this and then go, well, you're weak. So who's going to protect us? And these Europe will then start to want to have its own defence alliance in place to look after its own interests, which is going to be completely farcical and unnecessary, but it will lead to the demise of NATO. And NATO now is deeply divided because countries aren't in agreement. They publicly will say so, but privately they're going, this is a disaster, we can't continue. To fight this war, this is why this enormous pressure to get nations like the Germans to give their Taurus missiles to the Ukrainians has failed because Germany's going, we're not going to accelerate this anymore because the longer this goes on, the more damage it will do to us domestically. And also, maybe we'll cross a red line and, and then who knows what the Russians' uh, reaction to that might be. So, in essence, you're, the NATO is divided. NATO, if Ukraine loses the war and Russia wins, will probably not survive this. It doesn't mean NATO full stop will cease to exist, but I think there'll be a European alliance of nations. I don't think they will necessarily want to regard Russia as this arch enemy anymore. The US may, in the Trump administration, he's talked about leaving NATO or ending NATO. Maybe that would be the opportunity to just go, well, that's a Trump policy. Let's walk away from this. But NATO's future is going to be cast into doubt simply on the basis that they failed to achieve their objectives, which was to crush. And they said, we're going to crush Russia in every capacity, and it's totally failed. And for Ukraine, the other problem is, is the truth will come out about the extent of the death toll. Though. I mean, it's 
the stories coming out from Ukraine itself. Now, I'm not going to say I, this is correct, but there's at least 600,000 Ukrainians dead. There's talk and the stories come out. There's up to a million Ukrainians who've died, never mind the ones, you know, missing in action or ones who are injured and incapacitated that they'll never be able to function normally, forget on a battlefield, just in life, in normal life in general. Its economy is destroyed. Its financial system is destroyed. It's endemic corruption. I mean, the question is, what does a post-war Ukraine want of itself? What does it actually want for itself? And the West has got no idea. It's not comprehending what this means. I mean, there's going to be a backlash to to this from, does Poland want to take the Western part of Ukraine, including Lvov? What about the Romanians and the Hungarians? It's not clear. And we've already seen clear indications where there's been disagreements. I mean, Poland at times is siding with Ukraine in the next breath. It's almost at war with it, not literally, but economically, and to do with imports, export, grain deliveries, etc. I mean, that's simmering. So there's always going to come a point where if this these objectives fail, then someone's going to be, have to be held accountable. And the European nations, who are they going to blame? They'll have to blame the Americans. And if they blame it to the to such an extent, it means really logically NATO could will cease to exist because to create the the gravity behind their concerns about the whole aspect of financing and supporting the war effort for Ukraine against Russia means it, it will cause irreparable damage to the to the NATO or transatlantic alliance. And of course, as the political fallout will be enormous inside the Europe itself. The risk is this will cause so-called populist governments to be elected all over Europe. It will lead to the end of Brussels and the Atlanticists who pollute Brussels corridors, which they're just basically there to, to do what the United States wants them to do. They're effectively just vassals for US policy that the whole future of the European Union will be called into question because of the gravity of the fallout of this. This is why some weird dimension. They want the war to continue because they're terrified what the end of the war will mean, but they know that the longer this drags on, the risk is if the war carried on for five years, I don't believe for one minute it will. Russia might take the whole country by then and go, so now what? The war's over because we control it. So they want the war to continue and they don't want the war to continue and they've just dug this huge hole for themselves politically and invested so much capital in all these claims, including all the lies and the propaganda and not recognising the resistance and the durability of Russia economically, financially, politically, and in terms of the belief of the Russian people in Putin. They failed on every single level. This can't go unanswered because this isn't a war that lasted two weeks or four weeks and then it all stopped when there was a chance in April 2022 to end the war and the US told, it seems, Johnson to go and say, no, keep fighting the war, we'll support you, you can win this. They'd ended the war then, the political capital would have never been expanded to the extent that they could have recovered and NATO could have been seen where you were peacemakers, we've helped resolve this problem. They did the exact opposite and in the process, they've just undermined the very tenets of this alliance and the alliance has never been as strong as people think because most of the nations there are just there to do as they're told. If the Americans say jump, they ask how high, you know, but the thing they're all failing to grasp is the United States again is fighting a proxy war thousands of miles from home, trying to largely insulate itself from any of their political fallout. But the gravity of this is so huge, the US cannot logically walk away from this like it tried to do with Vietnam and Afghanistan and survive this because they've engulfed all their NATO partners into this problem in the process. Well, I think that's something worth thinking about is, let's say, the incentives that drew everybody into this conflict and why it's continuing the way it has. You know, again, something that you and I spoke about before we hit record today was this idea that there is a real difference between this being called a war versus a special military operation. What are some of those differences, Paul? I think fundamentally the difference comes down to how you prosecute 
I mean, they're both wars, really. I mean, I've always called it the Ukraine war. The special military operation, the idea was, and okay, this is Russia's perspective. It, it doesn't matter whether you agree with it or disagree with it. This is their perspective, and, and we're just discussing it from that perspective, was we want to go in and demilitarize Ukraine. We want to, to free up the, the Donbass republics. Okay, subsequently it's extended to Zaporozhye, curse on likely Nikolaev, Odessa, etc. in the future. That's a separate discussion. But to demilitarize it, they controversially, from the West perspective, said denazify it. And they wanted to make sure that Ukraine never joined NATO and it was basically a neutral state. But in the process, we are going to fight a special military operation, meaning we are not going to just go and flatten cities. We're going to minimize civilian casualties to try and minimize damage to infrastructure. That's completely failed. And that's not necessary at all to do with Russian policy decisions is because of the nature of how the special military operation ended up being fought where it was literally in each city Stalingrad is you know sadly in town to town city to city road to road house to house it's just horrendous I mean and that's how it's unfolded but that's the primary difference so this is why for example von der Leyen can go and visit Kiev with no problems because they get on the phone to the Russians. The Ukrainians go, von der Leyen's visiting, please don't target Kiev during the, in the next few days. Okay, we won't target anywhere in Kiev because we don't want to kill von der Leyen, obviously. If there was a war going on, von der Leyen wouldn't be anywhere near Ukraine and definitely not near Kiev because anyone who comes in would just be, well, sorry, you're a legitimate target. That's the big difference. Also, you know, they're not going to go in and flatten Kiev and displace and kill millions of people because they don't want to do that. That's the fundamental difference. The West believes Russia's fighting at 100% capacity. And it got lulled in going, well, they haven't taken the whole country. It's failed. Russia isn't trying to take the country. It's trying to demilitarize, which means the Ukraine ends up with no military personnel to fight the war and no ammunition, missiles, munitions, whatever, to fight a war. Well, They've achieved that objective. It's not about territory. Okay, in the end, it increasingly is about territory because they're taking more and more of the country in the process. But that's just by extension the fact that there's a whole contact line right across from Odessa all the way around up to past Kharkov and Sumy. They're literally in that line. It's uh, it's over a 1,000 kilometres long. doesn't mean there's wars going along the whole of this contact line. But that's fundamentally the huge difference. And it's something the West hasn't grasped. It doesn't understand that, but I think some had to do, don't turn this into a war. Don't make Russia have an excuse to declare war on Ukraine because then we're going to have a major problem. Because Russia could then would just flatten the whole country. Okay, I don't think they would want to do that because the global south would turn their back on them and say, now you are committing genocide. Now you are just killing people for the sake of killing it. This is unacceptable. But the risk is if you push Russia to declare war, that is a risk. So don't give the Ukrainians F-16s and they might fly into Russia and target Moscow or other cities. In Russia, just don't do this. Do not allow that situation to happen because then we can have escalation. And it might cause an escalation and suck some NATO countries in, and we don't want that either because nobody wants World War Three. There's this big myth that the West wants World War Three. If we have World War Three, it's game over. We're not going to have, oh, let's have some trench warfare for six months, or maybe it will escalate to nuclear weapons. If we have World War Three within half an hour, Europe won't exist anymore and probably neither will most of the United States. I'm not saying Russia will be unscathed. I'm trying to make the point from a Western perspective, that's World War Three. Not all these mythical ideas that, oh, it's just going to be Ukraine 2.0. It's not going to be that. There's an existential threat. Russia will go for the nuclear option. They've already said only today. If NATO countries get involved in fighting inside Ukraine itself, in the true sense of the word, that you've crossed the major red line, it's World War Three. They're just basically saying what exactly what we've made the point before. So that's the fundamental difference is why the US will continue to have to support Ukraine. It's got no choice, but it's running out of the capability to finance it. Um, 
huge sections of the Beltway and Congress are now going, well, where the hell is this money being spent? And that's true. Who's pocketing in, you know, enormous sums of money were in offshore accounts. There's all those allegations, and some of them are certainly true. But the US has to be seen to keep doing this because it doesn't want to then be accused, well, you caused the end of the war in Ukraine to lose because you stopped financing. And even though it's now completely ridiculous, and this is why there is backlash in the US about financing, because they know, in reality, it's a pointless war. Well, of course, you can't say that publicly because, again, it's the political capital angle we're coming back to. So that's the fundamental difference. It's how basically the ferocity with which you prosecute a war is radically greater than what you would do with a special military operation. And that's why Russia isn't about territory. It's just saying, and this is these awful situations where it's an awful word to use, meat grinder, but it's happened. Ukraine pours forces in, they all get killed. Russia waits, the next lot come in, they kill them, or Russia advances a bit, then retreats, the Ukrainians pile in, they all get killed. I mean, and this is happening for most of this war to varying degrees, some with some horrific casualty rates on a daily basis. I mean, during Advaka, I think there was something like 1,500 Ukrainians were killed in a single day. I mean, apart from any, this is why the war has to end. Because, you know, it, this is not about supporting Russia's perspective. It's just, I mean, at what point do you have to say, we can't now have the average age of the Ukrainian fighting is 48 years of age. I mean, there's people with no training, shoved on in the battlefield and probably have a life expectancy of a few hours. You, you can't do this. But this is what the special military operation has caused and the West should have gone. They're not fighting a conventional war. They look at, it's obvious what they're doing. We have to end this, but they can't end it. They don't want to end it because they're far more concerned about the ramifications of how this will unfold domestically and in geopolitical terms, NATO, et cetera, than the fate of what's happening to Ukrainians, which is, you know, to put it diplomatically, and I'm being diplomatic, it's heartbreaking. There's far stronger language we could use, and I'm not going to, and that's why this war has to end. There is no way Ukraine can win it. There's no doubt in anybody's mind that that's the reality. But this is when politics gets completely out of control. And the worst thing we can do is, through desperation, cause Russia then to say this is a war because you've provoked in this manner and given Russia justification in international law to do this. That's the point. Don't give them the opportunity to do this because in the end it won't change the outcome of the war. It will just create more devastation, more horrendous loss of life. And frankly, the Ukrainians have suffered enough from my perspective. And I think anyone who actually cares at all about people or humanity should feel the same way. I absolutely agree, Paul. And, you know, listening to the points that you're making about this conflict just makes me consider how many moving parts there really are to all of these different situations whether it be Russia, Ukraine, whether it be the conflict in the Middle East. And then when we piece all of this together along with, let's say, the first half of our conversation today with the hyper-financialization and the metaphor of many, many spinning plates that are starting to wobble here, it just makes me really think that there are any one of these things that could dramatically weaken these institutions that have existed for such a long time that Many people just have this recency bias that it will always continue to be this way. Do you get that sense as well sometimes? Yes, of course, because it's very, look, it's very hard if you live in a Western world and you've grown up. I mean, think about anybody. I mean, I'm not diminishing a child's capability to understanding, but if you go post World War II, you go back to Bretton Woods for 1944. We're talking this year. 80 years ago. So really, logically, there are anybody who's alive on this planet has always been used to the idea that, you know, even if they don't want to admit it, that the United States was the superpower. Okay, you can argue that during the Cold War, Russia was, but post-collapse of Russia, it certainly wasn't. And But, you know, the US has been top dog, and the US instituted the CIA afterward, you know, Bretton Woods, there was 
the IMF, the World Bank, there's the dollar as the world reserve currency, and the US has been calling the shots for decades. I mean, this is true. I mean, we can't, there's no point denying the truth. So it's very hard for people to imagine a world where the US isn't dominant. I mean, they might, some people might think it's a great idea. Some people might be neutral. Some people might hate the idea. And some people who hate the idea are equally frightened of what the alternative might be. And therefore, they're obviously predisposed to the idea, well, all this has to survive. It's impossible. Yes, the US has printed the currency into oblivion. Yes, you know, inevitably at some point, I think even the biggest diehard dollar bugs will go, well, it's here. But they think it's going to be here for 20, 30, 40 years more. It won't be. We're way past that point. 2008 was the end, and we've had 15 more years of the end. So it's very hard for people to comprehend that these big institutions will fail because they, they immediately say, well, what's going to fill the vacuum? That's the thing that people fear, and they go, well, if the West collapses and there's a vacuum, who's going to come in? And they go, well, it'll be the Chinese, it'll be the Russians, it'll be the Iranians. And they're terrified what that means. Now, the argument was if, if those nations actually were hell-bent on being hegemonic powers, then you know you might have a problem. But they have no desire to do that. The Russia's learned its lesson from the Soviet Union era. China's never had any desire to do this in Iran. When, when did Iran, I mean, okay, there's the Iran-Iraq war, but when has Iran ever shown any desire to be imperialistic? They haven't, and they don't want to be. So then in some ways, there's people going, they're even more frightened. Well, if there's a vacuum and no one's going to fill the vacuum, then chaos will fill the vacuum. And what does that mean? I mean, does that mean the nation states collapse? And, you know, and what could that mean for the Western world? Okay, let's forget the global south for a minute. We don't care what they their feeling is or what they're thinking on this. We're just looking after our own interests, fair enough. But they, they will sit there and go, we can't comprehend this. And for a lot of people, it's like, I just don't want to even think that's possible. So they'll sit there and convince themselves it can't happen. And somehow the US is militarily the strongest nation. It just hasn't asserted itself. Well, the US can't assert itself. I mean, and if you actually talk to objective people inside the Beltway, inside the military and intelligence, and they've made public statements, they're agreeing. It's over. The US is not military powerful anymore. It's trying to throw its weight around. It's failed in Iraq. It's failed in Syria. It's failed in Afghanistan. It's failing in Ukraine. It's never going to get traction with regards to Taiwan and China. And also, of course, the other fundamental problem, if you look at the US with regards to the issue of what's happening in Israel and Gaza, I mean, the US has no choice but to defend Israel because the United States is in a situation where its Congress is at the behest of the Israeli lobby. So the, the US has to, at all costs, sit there and go, well, we have to defend Israel and we have to be seen to be doing it. But there's a part of them going, well, we can't defend certain of their actions and what's going on in, in Gaza anymore. And they're caught, they're just absolutely just caught in a situation. I made this point, you know, it's the last thing they want is an extension of this into a regional conflict. They wanted this war over with quickly because the US cannot afford to have all this political investment financially, but also in terms of just pure politics, because the US is suffering enormous isolation because it's seen by whether people agree or disagree doesn't matter. It's not about perception anymore. It's just stone cold fact. Large parts of the world are getting angry with the United States' policy towards Israel. And it's not just the global south. There's European nations privately disgruntled with what's going on, saying, you know, we don't feel we can support this anymore. But equally, they don't want to appear to be, you know, differentiating from what is largely the, the party line with regards to that war. So there are all these enormous problems that now exist. The US just simply can't manage any of them. The US struggles to manage more than one conflict. It's got three, four, five conflicts going on, as well as all the loss of hegemony, the loss of the dollar as a world reserve currency, an ongoing process. And there are people, of course, looking at this and saying, well, but, you know, it's human nature. If you feel something threatens you to that extent, you don't want to believe it's true. But we need the cooler heads to go, okay, it's true. 
I don't want it to be true, but how can we best mitigate this problem exacerbating? The last thing the US needs to do is to isolate itself anymore on the world stage because it's isolated enough. This is why we've seen these big tectonic shifts in policy with West Asia towards the United States. No one would have ever believed how they've turned their back on them. I mean, most of those states are all supporting Russia in one way or another to evade sanctions, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, Saudi Arabia and Russia have an extremely strong relationship. We know Iran and Russia do. Iraq and Russia do, and the list goes on, Syria and Russia, et cetera. And the United States has been completely shocked by this. But So even the people inside the Beltway who see reality just don't want to face it because, you know, they've spent some of them decades of their life in service to the US and everything that that means, and they're seeing it all slip away. And it's too painful to admit the truth. But, you know, to use the, the analogy of Russia collapsing in the Soviet Union, when Russia collapsed, the day before, most of the hardliners still there were going, it's business as usual. We're thriving. What's the problem? They were so incapable of either wanting to accept reality or see it. And there are certainly a lot of people who still cannot comprehend a world that doesn't mean the United States is the hegemonic power, is the superpower. Whatever. They don't want to face it. They can't face it. And the ones who do, they're so frightened what this means, which is why you see these ridiculous statements coming out, which don't mean anything, but it's people just projecting their fear in this regard. But this is an opportunity that might seem fearful and even worse for, for people in the US in the political realm and, and other realms. But it's also an opportunity where if the US sorts itself out, it can be a great nation amongst equals. And I as much as I'm savagely critical of the US's policies domestically and internationally, nothing would please me more to see that happen because a great nation amongst equals, the US is, and we made this point before, would be hugely beneficial to the world. If the US actually channeled what it could do in a productive, constructive way, think about what the US could contribute. It would be enormous. So instead of building bases all around the world, wasting $900 billion plus dollars a year on ridiculous military-industrial complex escapades, invest the money, get China to buy your debt, get China to invest in America and rebuild it and make it the great nation. I think as much as the US has been collapsing for 100 years, I think the end really, when it had a bit of a spell, was in the 50s and 60s to some degree not entirely was, and after that, it was just downhill. But the US needs to strive to get back to that. And it can do that. Okay, how it's going to sell to the world? Well, they're not our adversaries anymore. Well, just find a way. I'm sure if people see the benefits in doing this, and you know, and, and increasingly, there are younger generations with a different perspective, you're gonna have to sell something uncomfortable. But if you don't, the alternative is 20 times worse. But for now, we're still in that position. For a lot of people, it's just so painful and they're so fearful that we'll have a Cold War 2.0 on steroids and Russia will try and take Europe and, you know, and Russia will infiltrate everywhere and China's going to join in and they'll form this autocratic world and it'll be, you know, no democracy, even though the West democracy is increasingly farcical. But it'd be everything our worst nightmare is. And they have to realize that's not true. The worst nightmare is because of the neglect we have done economically, financially, financialization. And we're back to that whole point again. And what all the domestic policies and international policy have been a complete failure. And to continue to pursue them, you know, it's the old definition of insanity is repeating the same exercise over and over again and expecting a different result. We need to accept it's over. We have to accept it's going to be very painful. But in the long term, we need to build for the future and find a future where the likes of the US can find a place in the world where it's respected, which has to happen. It's trusted. And it's able to really utilize fully its capabilities. And who doesn't want that? Because that would be the final indication of stability in the world. And we need stability because 
the West is going to have to go through these huge economic financial changes. It needs that stability. The last thing it needs is nations internally crumbling, the US to be deeply divided along many lines, not just politically. That will be a disaster to try and rebuild the US. It needs that unity and it needs that trust and cooperation because then it can achieve those objectives infinitely faster. I mean, I really think the US, if it got its ducks lined up properly, could achieve those objectives in five years. Quite literally, maybe 10 top, but you'd see huge tangible improvements, not after five years, but every year. But if it doesn't, it risks being totally isolated, including by its allies, and it will face a very uncertain future, and it could be then decades in the making, or some awful internal upheaval happens that forces this, but no one wants that either, because ultimately what will that do to the average American? It will be devastating. So there has to be some cooler heads somewhere, I don't know where they are, who will recognise this, realise this, and go, we have to do a, not even a 180, it's like a 180 travelling at the speed of light and realise we have to make these fundamental changes. And when we do, ultimately, it will be beneficial because there's no point of return. The US is not going to go back and be an hegemonic power anymore and try to dominate world policy, dominate the world with a dollar. Those days have gone, it's over. It's just now a question of enough people realizing that this is the case and accepting it and just saying we don't need to be fearful we just need to face the very painful reality that we've been completely wrong in our policy decisions and if we change it then the future can be extremely bright and you know i hope and i think it will happen maybe sooner or later that the world will once again respect the us as being a responsible custodian who will want to be part to deal with conflicts in the world in a legitimate way, wants to exercise trade in a legitimate way, doesn't want to abuse its position and abuse its currency or anything. It just wants to have a level playing field and be allowed to assert itself on the basis of its capabilities. And I don't doubt the American people have those capabilities. And I think we should look to embrace that. And I, you know, I think that's a very pro-American stance. I don't think that in any way, shape, or form suggests I'm anti-American. Quite the contrary. Yeah, I found a quote from a Chinese foreign minister, Wang Yi, and it says, lose-lose is not a rational choice, and win-win is the future of mankind. I think this is worth remembering, and hopefully people can take that to heart. And I think that's a good place to kind of wrap up today's conversation with Paul. Is there anything else you'd like to leave our listeners with before we do? Yeah, well, I'd echo Wang Yi's interest. He's one of the senior members of the Chinese Politburo, their government. So that he's reflecting the the view of Xi Jinping and, and the rest of the Politburo. And he's absolutely correct. I mean, I would just comment on that. And as a final point, look, the world's radically changing. There'll be things none of us like. There might be things we're not happy about. It doesn't make me or anyone else who tells you the truth an apologist. I, I'm not particularly, I'm not nationalistic. I have no affiliation. I just would like to see a world, and it, call me an idealist, call me a dreamer, that, that, that you know one day the world will work in cooperation. I think we're making steps in the right direction. It's a long process. I don't know how long it will take. But everyone should want to embrace that. And we just need to sometimes accept that the world we've grown up in existing has made bad choices, bad mistakes, and we need to look to embrace something else. But that doesn't mean that it's to the detriment of us as a nation. So, And also just to look at things, observe how the world is changing, what the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians, the Africans, the, the South Americans the West Asia's doing, et cetera, et cetera. Look at what they're actually doing, what they're trying to achieve. And look at it objectively. And don't look at it how you want the outcome to be. Just accept the outcome that is happening. And it, that's all I've ever tried to do with the podcast. And I think we've achieved very high success rate in laying out things that people seem to believe would never happen or implausible. Because that's all I try to do is be objective. I'm you know, I can have personal views on the world, 
But my view about the Ukraine war is to assess what's, what's actually happening. What does this mean in reality? And we've been accurate in doing that. It's not a conventional Western opinion, but we don't want to have conventional opinions. It's, you know, ultimately it's about understanding or as to coin my phrase, don't be entertained, be informed. And I think in the world as the West does crater and all these problems, being informed is critical. Having an understanding of even things you don't want to accept or believe in is extremely important. I know it served me well. And in that context, because I'm far happier to understand what's happening rather than wanting to believe in something that's an illusion. Well, I really like that saying, Paul, don't be entertained, be informed. I I couldn't agree more with it because I, I really do try to stay away from the really sensationalistic views in this space and try to help get an objective sense of what's going on as best as we can. Again, for our listeners that would like to hear more from Paul, you do how many podcasts per week again, Paul? It's equivalent of five podcasts a week. I mean, some of them I, because some subjects are too long, so it's normally a single one's about 20 minutes, the one's about 40 minutes. You can, their audio, you so you can subscribe monthly or yearly. You get a discount yearly and you can go to the seriousreport.com. But we also, because we've got a lot of people going, I don't really have time to listen or I don't like the audio format. So we also got a subscription, which is a cut down written version. And that's on Substack, but you can access those details on our website as well. So it's in written form and audio form. And we've just reached episode 1900. I, when I started this, I kind of wondered if I'd even do it for a year. We've been doing it for seven and a half years nearly. I Never kind of expected to die. In fact, I sometimes turn around and wonder how I ever started doing it, but I'm glad to have and I think it adds value and, and we make it extremely affordable. It's very cheap. But, you know, we put a lot of effort into this and I, people, have, I'm sure, appreciate none of us do work for nothing. We all have to make, you know, pay our bills and put food on the table, etc. But we've made it very cheap and kept it cheap because we, we feel people, you know, who want to listen to it shouldn't be, you know, pay extortion amounts of money to do so. Excellent. Well, I'm sure everybody appreciates that, Paul. And of course, you're available on Twitter as well, at The Serious Report, S-I-R-I-U-S Report. Paul, thanks so much for your time today, and we'll make sure we do this with less of a lag between. <laughs> oh, it's been a pleasure, and thank you. And obviously... You know, I want to give you a bit of a plug. You do a great job on Palisades and trying to get people to understand reality and and to understand difficult concepts. You do a great job and hats off to everything you're trying to do as well. I think, you know, I appreciate it and obviously an awful lot of other people do as well. So well done as well. Thank you very much, Paul. Appreciate your time. Pleasure. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.